I'm Umbreen Khan, and this is Inspired by Interfaith Voices. This week, we've been talking about global news stories and how faith emerges often in surprising and, well, different ways. For one, much depends on who is doing the reporting. It makes a big difference in how the story is told. That's a theme that emerges in my conversation with veteran journalist, editor Dilshad Ali. She joined Hot Hijab five years ago to launch a news blog that serves a growing audience, Muslim women. In addition to managing a team and writing for Hot Hijab, Ali's stories and commentary have appeared in outlets including the Religion News Service, The Atlantic, and The New York Times. Dilshad Ali, welcome to Inspired by Interfaith Voices. I believe this is your first time on the program. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you. Happy New Year, by the way. Happy New Year to you, too. As we start the year, looking at some of those stories that carried from 2022 into 2023 and are likely to continue to evolve. And we're focusing on the globe. So I'm excited to have you on. I know that's global stories is something you pay attention to. And you did a wrap up of 2022 stories that got my attention on your blog. So I want to start off there. Iran, tell me a little bit about how you covered Iran and any surprises that you saw emerge. You know, it's interesting to be talking about this because the story that really got going in September of 2022 is is still going. You know, it's not something we should be forgetting about. Protests are still happening. You know, it started out with the story of 22-year-old Mahsa Amini, uh, the Iranian woman who died in police custody after being arrested for um, improperly wearing her hijab, as was reported in many news reports, you know, that some of her hair was showing by the country's immorality police and that she died in police custody. And from there, it just just erupted in the country, as we all know. You are talking about hijab. I want to just pause for a moment and have you define those terms that you're using. You know, if you boil down to the exact definition, you know, hijab would be the, the cloth or the, you know, scarf that you use to cover your hair and um, possibly the top part of your body. Uh Niqab would be the veil that you would use to cover part of your face. Maybe mm-hmm. all of it, maybe just nose on down. Um, other words that people will use will be like abaya or burqa, which is like the robe or dress that you would use to cover your whole body. But hijab itself is just is the headscarf, really. And so this started out as like more about forced hijab wearing. And so, you know, you would think, why would we cover that? But no, of course we would cover it. Of course we would pay attention to it because forced hijab wearing is just as troubling as, you know, forcing a woman not to. It's about taking that choice away. So that's where it started. But obviously it has gone well beyond the question of forced hijab. And there's a lot of different things that Iranian um, citizens are fighting back against uh, with their government and with, you know, just the way things have been enforced over there towards women, towards the population in general. Was there anything that surprised you about what happened in Iran? What initially surprised me was how much steam it picked up in terms of global solidarity. I mean, women across the board, women and men across the board, showing solidarity with uh, Muslim women in Iran and with, you know, Iranian citizens in general. 
But then after a while, that's not surprising me. What surprised me was how people were showing solidarity, because if you listen and if you kind of drill down, you know, into the things that Iranian citizens were saying, I mean, obviously, they spoke a lot about being policed about wearing hijab or how they wear hijab or are they allowed to wear lipstick or whatever, right? But then it went from there into like a larger political climate that they've lived under for decades. Different things about state power and uh, how workers unions and reformist political groups and clerics and how things have all those different things have um, fomented in the region and structures that they were fighting against. And if you looked at uh, the way solidarity was being shown by different people around the world, I mean, often you had videos of women like cutting off four inches of their hair in solidarity with the Iranian women. And that didn't make a lot of sense to me. You know, solidarity movements look like in solidarity with, you know, wearing hijab or not wearing hijab or showing solidarity or allyship and all those different things. And um, some of these showmanships of of a solidarity and allyship just seemed a little performative. Um, That was a little surprising. I want to shift from Iran for a moment. You know, during the holiday season, there was a really big story that came out of Afghanistan that got very little coverage that also had to do with women. Uh, the, The denial of a right to higher education. Can you talk a little bit about what happened in Afghanistan over the break? Yeah, you know... I don't know if you found it surprising or not, Amarine, but I did not find that surprising. I mean, I felt like this was just the playbook, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, you know, when when the U.S. troops vacated Afghanistan and into that vacuum, the Taliban came back in and, Mm -hmm. oh, it's going to be different. It's going to be a different Taliban. And sure, in the beginning, it looks like they're being much more supportive and much more open-minded. But it wasn't surprising to me that we came to this point where now... um, higher education was banned for women. They said that they are banning women from universities for not observing Islamic dress rules or other Islamic values. You know, they're citing things like, oh, they're coming to class without a male guardian or so on and so forth. But in my mind, and from looking at, you know, what has happened in the past and what is happening now, it's it's the Taliban playbook coming to life. And I don't know why anyone would be surprised by it. And the fact that it happened right around, you know, the whole holiday December break time, I mean, talk about a smart calculation to do something like that, because it just didn't get the attention that the story deserved, you know, after so many years of being in that country and talking about women's rights and supporting women and education for women and on and on and on. You asked me a question, and I don't typically take questions, but I will from you. Was I surprised? <laughs> no. Um, no. I'm also, <laughs> I'm also from, I'm originally from Pakistan, and so I pay really close attention. What I was struck by during the U.S. withdrawal was the willingness to accept the Taliban on its promise that it would right. deny women's education. What is a question for me is that during the period of stability, or at least when women were able to regain the foothold and step into public life, participate in the economy, go to school, many, many women have been educated. And I know that here in the United States, there are a growing number of Afghan 
American women. And so I will be watching to see how they raise their voices and what will the response of the Biden administration be at this time. This is going to be a big year. So, I mean, do you think that there is a political will based on your observation among Muslims to make this an issue? You guys are listening to and hearing from Muslim women at Hot Hijab. Are you hearing Muslim women reply or respond to this? I'm not hearing the kind of response that I would hope to hear at this point in time. Now, that doesn't mean that there isn't time and space for the response to come. Sometimes these movements take some time to build. And I'm looking at the timing of things that have been happening now and things that have been grabbing the attention of Muslim women and Muslim communities around the world. You know, there was so much like uh, excitement and thrill around the World Cup in uh, November, December. A lot of attention and energy went to that. And then we were in the holiday break. And now we've come all of, out of the holiday break. And in two to three months time, it'll be Ramadan. So I mean, not to make excuses for why this story has been buried uh, to an extent, but hopefully there will be more attention placed on this and there will be some rallying around this story. Um, but we have to we have to watch and see what happens because I don't see it right now. And what I find interesting is that, you know, Taliban makes these promises. You know, they will say, well, yeah, sure, I'm. I'm putting words in their mouth. But to me, it sounds like the story is being painted like, well, sure, they could get their education if they would observe the dress rules correctly or if they would have a male guardian with them. And what's funny is if you look at a country like Saudi Arabia and they just, you know, last year when they changed the rules around Hajj and how people can apply to perform Hajj, they changed the rules around um, needing a male guardian. You've mentioned a couple times having a male guardian when you go to school. I know a lot of women who are Muslim women who were raised in Muslim majority countries. I I don't know of one instance. I know. I I can't. I actually can't name one country where I know that that is like even understood as a as a requirement. So okay, so we're talking about school and education and women, and I have to shift to kind of this reality for a lot of people out there listening. I know that. Some believe that denying uh, girls education is somehow rooted in Islamic scripture all the way back to the 7th century. But um, the history actually bears out something very different. Women were encouraged to not just read, but to become knowledgeable. And in our modern era, we recently lost a pioneer uh, a Muslim scholar who was originally from Syria, the Sheikha from Syria. Who was she? Uh, Sheikha Munira Khubesi, who passed away in Damascus at the age of 89, um, right at the end of 2022, uh, late December. And her story actually was brought to my attention by um, uh, Feri Al-Salem, who is an associate professor in the Chicago area. And uh, she shared her story with a number of um, women and friends of ours. You could call it like a mini obituary or so, uh, about the Sheikha and just really did a solid to all of us in educating us about her work. Many, many of these women already knew about her work. And there were some like me who didn't know enough about her. And so Sheikha Munira Khubesi, you know, she was a pioneer in Syria and in the realm of um, Islamic scholarship. And, you know, her story and her history is so fascinating. You know, she came of age in the 1950s. She was one of the first women in uh, to wear hijab while also pursuing higher education. 
Um, you know, she got a bachelor of science, you know, she went on to get more education. Uh, and this was at a time when, you know, a lot of women were marrying early and a lot of families did not let their uh, daughters attain higher education. And yet she did. And, you know, she went on to uh, educate in the Sira, in the schools of fiqh, in Hadith, and in all sorts of um, Islamic education. And, you know, she her work is fascinating and her work is so important. And I wish I had known about her earlier. Well, and I thank you for writing about her so I could learn about her. So I appreciate it. And it sparked so many questions for me, just the hearing the stories from Afghanistan, hearing the stories from Iran. It can sometimes be hard to reconcile that you have all of these different things happening. And for me, at least from where I sit, the big differentiator is whether or not you live in a state uh, that allows for freedom, that whether there's liberty to be able to pursue education, liberty to be able to have different points of view and debate um, and participate in society. I'm curious at Hot Hijab, how important is it to be able to uh, amplify some of those voices for your audience? It's extremely important. And, you know, for example, like the story of the Sheikha, like I said, came to me from uh, Professor Fariel Salem. And these lists are always tricky to do because there's always things that get left out. You know, that's that's the beauty of this work where you are learning things all the time. You build these communities, you broaden your reach. There's, you know, you're, there's no way that you and I um, can know everything. You know, that's a great segue to learning and the importance of having access to scholars that are able to translate the insights they have into a language the rest of us can understand. And I have to tell you, you talked about the World Cup a little bit ago. When the World Cup was happening, there were so many moments, so many moments in which discussions about culture and religion emerged. And it was one in which I learned about the Bisht. B-I-S-H-T, the Bisht, uh, when it was a, a robe that was draped on Messi. And how did you see the global media coverage unfold around this? And was it even? Like, was it the same everywhere? Oh, yeah, it was not the same everywhere. How was European media reporting on it? How how was it being reported on in Argentina, you know, uh, Messi's home country? How was it being reported on in the U.S. and Middle Eastern countries? There was a vast variety and a vast difference of reporting on it. And if you looked at a lot of Argentinian media, um, there was a lot of uh, respect and pride for what happened that, you know, in that moment. The bish, you know, it's an outer garment that's worn in uh, predominantly Arab countries. And it's a considered a symbol of great honor. So it's a status symbol among, you know, royalty, among the wealthy, among people with high social ranking, you know, like ceremonial you know, robes for graduation or, and, and things like that. So, you know, the Amir of a country um, gifting you with a bish uh, is a really high honor that they were bestowing upon uh, Messi and the Argentinian football team. It really wasn't, it wasn't about religion at all. And if you looked at the way it was being covered, you know, by different uh, European media outlets or UK or the US, you know, there was, or how um, people from those countries on social media were talking about it from sports reporters and commentators to just fans, there was a lot of anger and outrage, you know, how could they take this moment away from Messi? Why are they covering up his uniform with this like black robe? And just, it was it was kind of ridiculous, I thought. And if you, you know, read Argentinian media, they, you know, accepted it for the honor that it was and um, appreciated the symbolism of it and realized that it really wasn't about making something Islamic. It was just about 
a country doing what a country does to honor, you know, the champion of that tournament. It's interesting because what I hear as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking about two things, cultural competency, like how much do we know about a culture when we sit down to write or report on it? And that's a question for editors and for journalists, obviously, but also for readers. And when it came to the World Cup, there were a lot of articles that I saw coming out of uh m- you know, Middle East and South Asia that was talking about Islamophobia. They had a different way of treating Qatar because it was a Muslim-majority country with Muslim-majority practices. What's, what was your view? I mean, was there was this just simply lack of cultural competency or was there also some what folks call Islamophobia in play? You know, I think if we were to say that it's just Islamophobic, we're not doing it due diligence. If we're to say it's just about cultural competency, we're not doing it due diligence. You had that one story come out of German media, you know, comparing Moroccan players raising their finger up in the air to an ISIS symbol. Whereas, you know, raising your finger up to acknowledge God or maybe to acknowledge where number one is pretty ubiquitous in the sporting world. You know, you had a Danish media story comparing Moroccan players to monkeys. You know, you had mm. French media stories comparing Qataris to terrorists. Now, all this being said, you know, the emphasis on, you know, human rights violations and how uh, immigrants and migrant workers in the lead up to the World Cup, how they were being treated and the working conditions, valid, valid criticism. My point is, like, this stuff is happening all over the place, you know. Anytime there's a big sporting tournament or anything around the world, there's human rights violations and we should be covering it and we should make sure, you know, in the media, we're holding countries accountable to it. But I just, it just felt disproportionate at times, you know, Mm. and it depended on where in the world you were consuming your media. It's complex and overlapping issues. The human rights violations, labor rights violations that exist in countries, um, including the U.S., you know, including the United States. Uh, When there is journalistic coverage, do they have an obligation and a responsibility to understand the culture they're covering, to provide that context, and to be transparent and hold the country accountable? These are heavy questions, and we live in an environment with a lot of media outlets. There are thousands of outlets out there shaping the story. And those you know, those stories are coming fast and furious through all our social media feeds. And then our social media feeds are dictated by who do we curate? Who are we listening to? Are we are we in a silo? Are we, you know, listening broadly around the world? It's very interesting to follow. Dilshad Ali is a journalist, writer, and autism and disability rights advocate based in Virginia. She's currently the editor of Hot Hijab News Blog, managing a team of writers that cover trends in the U.S. and around the globe. A graduate of the Merrill School of Journalism at the University of Maryland, Ali has covered American Muslims and global Islam for a variety of outlets, from Islam Online to BeliefNet to Patheos. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times, Newsweek, The Atlantic, Religion News Service, and other outlets. For links to the articles we discussed, visit this week's show notes at interfaithradio.org. This week's show is produced by Kevin McCarthy. A special thanks to our founder, Maureen Fiedler, MC Yogi for our theme music, and additional sounds by Audio Binger. As we move into this new year, consider adding Interfaith Voices to your podcast feed. Just search Interfaith Voices wherever you listen. And while you're there, leave us a review. 
Before we end, I'm excited to share that as we begin 2023, we have a new station partner in Sarasota and Bradenton, Florida. If you are interested in bringing Inspired to your local station, visit interfaithradio.org. While you're there, you can explore this week's show notes, check out the archive, and more. Inspired is a production of Interfaith Voices. Wherever you are, friends, I hope you are well. I hope you are safe, and I hope you stay connected. I'll see you next week.